0: You're listening to Fair Play on Justicenews.net.
1: Welcome to Fair Play on Justicenews.net. I'm your host, Imran Siddiqui. Luke Verkala was arrested in 2013 and then first convicted in 2014 on charges of murder in the killing of David Ryder, sending Luke to life in prison with the possibility of parole after 25 years of time served. Workullah has stated from the get-go that he fell asleep in his home after a day of Super Bowl drinking with David Ryder, but woke up at 2 a.m. to Ryder attempting to force him to perform oral sex, and upon resisting, he started to strangle Luke. Luke pulled David's hands from around his throat, and then he ran to get a shotgun from his bedroom to intimidate Ryder and warned him to stop and leave. Luke also ejected a live round to scare him, which did not work, and during the course of this struggle between the two, fearing for his life and of his families, the trigger was pulled, killing David Ryder instantly while Luke's wife and kids slept in another room. But the Oregon Board of Appeals overturned the decision and ordered a retrial in 2018, determining that police should have stopped an initial interrogation of Luke when he asked for an attorney in 2013. On February 14, 2018, the Oregon Court of Appeals reversed Verkula's conviction and ordered a new trial. The appeals court ruled that everything on the video of Verkula's interrogation after he said he wanted a lawyer should have been suppressed. The appeals court did not address the issue of the evidence of Ryder's behavior in the past. By the time Luke went to trial a second time in March 2021, his lawyers, Joel Wertz and Thad Betts had obtained another round of DNA testing on the scrapings from Ryder's fingernails. And as a result, these tests were conclusive that Verkula's DNA was present under Ryder's fingernails of both hands. The defense lawyers argued that this supported Verkula's testimony that Ryder grabbed him around the neck and choked him in an attempt to force him to engage in oral sex. In addition, testing was done on Ryder's boxer shorts and Verkula's DNA was not present. The defense said that had there been consensual sex, Verkala's DNA would certainly be present on the boxer shorts, which was not. On April 5th, 2021, the jury acquitted Verkala and he was released. And joining me today is Luke Verkala himself. Thank you for your time, Luke, and welcome to Fair Play.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me.
1: You're okay with all that you heard so far? Yeah. So tell me, after all of this, what kind of toll does a tragedy like this take on an individual's life and on his families.
2: Well, it takes a huge toll. And obviously this has always been bigger than me. I mean, it not only completely destroyed my life, I mean, obviously I lost my freedom, lost my home, um, the life I was living. Um, but it had a huge impact on You know, my relationship, my marriage, which ultimately did not survive my incarceration. Um, And then just the rest of my family as well, my parents and siblings. And, you know, I have a pretty close-knit family. And, I mean, I've, I've been blessed to always have wonderful support from them and some close friends. But, yeah, I mean, they all they all suffered through this along with me. So yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't an easy thing to get through.
1: And what about right now? How are you doing now? And what are, I mean, I don't know if you want to disclose your location, but how are you now and
2: what you're doing? I mean, I'm good. It's, uh, it's obviously great to be out and very, um, satisfying to receive justice at last and to be vindicated. Um, but it's also a huge transition, you know, I've, I've been on the inside for eight years, and uh, it's obviously a different reality in there. Um, it's a world that's very regimented and tightly controlled, and just going from that to absolute freedom again, I mean, it's, it's a big adjustment. You know, I feel feel a little more human as each day passes, but uh, I don't know. I'd compare it to kind of like an emotional roller coaster ride. So yeah, it, it's been it's been good, but also challenging, and just trying to remember how to you know live in the free world and uh, basically rebuilding my life from scratch. So.
1: Do you think something like this can happen to anyone, anywhere?
2: Yes, I do. And, I mean, that's the scary thing about it. Um, I certainly wasn't living any kind of a lifestyle where I figured I could end up in prison at all, let alone doing a life sentence. I mean, I'd never even been to jail before any of this. Sounds cliche, but I was a tax-paying, law-abiding citizen. And, you know, I had just moved to Bend um, with my wife-to-be and uh, her son, and we were really just starting starting our life together, and it was pretty idyllic, and to go from that to serving a life sentence, you know, my whole life was just blown away in the blink of an eye, and no one was more shocked than myself, um, so yeah, I, I think... Uh, most people in this country aren't aware of how messed up the justice system really is. And, you know, I think that's that's one of my major goals, is to, you know, just tell this story and try to raise awareness, because people do need to understand that it really can't happen to anyone. And, you know, once they have that realization, not just intellectually, but emotionally, That's how you bring about change. You know, people have to feel on an emotional level and understand that there is a real problem. And, yeah, so that's... You know, I've always wanted to try and use this experience for good. And um, now that I'm on the other side of it, that's... I feel a duty to do that, so...
1: Who do you think should be held accountable for what happened in your case?
2: Yeah, well, the people mainly responsible are the prosecutors and you know there was just a lot of misconduct and deceit lying that went on you know about the evidence and withholding of evidence and you know there was some collusion with the police department there i mean it's it's a problem that's nationwide right now and The prosecutors in this country, they just wield this awesome power, and there's really no accountability. Even when they're caught red-handed, you know, rarely does anything happen to them. You know, at best, it's like a slap on the wrist. Oh, don't do that again. And usually, it's not even that. You know, prosecutors basically have absolute immunity, and I think it's the largest problem in the justice system, right? You know, power corrupts absolute power corrupts absolutely and this is the result where you have literally thousands of people being wrongly convicted of felonies every year in this country
1: what about the the
2: role of media?
1: how does the media set the agenda or the tone uh, of an individual's story because I read this article and right at the top of the article was there sense that you know, you had some kind of a consensual relationship with this individual. Right. Which which is the opposite, that you did not have a consensual relationship with this individual. Is that correct? That's correct. But the way the article was put, your point of view came right at the end of the article. And that's why I wanted the listeners to be aware of, you know, the whole perspective yeah, uh, from your side and from the... The courts. That's why you know I read that intro. Mm. But that that meat, that content, that should have been like right at the top, from your vantage point, what you've been saying all this time, which kind of matches. Uh, that was kind of missing. So, do you think whatever that was reported in your case was correct? Do you think they play a fair role in sending innocent people to prisons, or do you think they try to help them out in terms of getting out?
2: No, I don't think there's a lot of help from the media, and unfortunately, from my experience, you know, they, they basically just align themselves with what's coming out of the DA's office. And that certainly happened in my case, you know, for the initial several years that this was going on. You know, they weren't even printing myself or my legal team had to say basically at all, it was just, Okay, what did the prosecution tell us happened? And we'll just print that. Um, So, yeah, it's kind of a failing in, you know, the media is known as the fourth estate in this country. They're kind of supposed to be like the fourth pillar of democracy. And, you know, a big part of that is holding government officials and offices accountable. And when they're just taking whatever they tell them and running with it, they're failing in that duty. So there was a lot of resistance. I mean, that was something, especially after I won my appeal, I just felt it was important to try to reach out to the media as much as possible and to try to get the actual facts of my case out in front of the public. So I had a lot of family members, some close friends who got involved in this process. You know, they organized a couple protests and banned, created a website for me, freelukeworkla.com, and handed out flyers, things of this nature, but at least prior to my acquittal, most of our outreach towards mainstream media was met with uh, there wasn't a very good reception. So, I mean, they did print a couple of things, but like I'd written some articles and like none of the Ben papers would run, like editorial pieces, none of the Ben papers would run them. And most of what we were trying to put out there, and again, these are just facts of the case, and most of it verifiable by physical evidence, testimony, Um, but they really didn't want any part of it. Like, oh, it's too controversial. I mean, I just got the sense they were afraid of offending someone um, at the DA's office, Mm -hmm. and that's unfortunate, because, you know, in the meantime, you have an innocent person who's You know wasting away in a jail cell and the interesting thing is after i was acquitted um, it was kind of like a sea change well now all these mainstream media outlets want to talk to me they want to interview me and their coverage is now very favorable it's like oh he was acquitted now it's safe for us to you know print the actual facts here but when they were really needed which is when i'm fighting for my life it was basically crickets from them so
1: and that's synonymous uh, throughout the reporting except uh, some of the articles that i that i read which kind of made you know made sure that both sides are presented
2: right and that's what it sh- that's what it should be you know unbiased presentation of the facts from both sides and you let the reader decide right but that's, again, at least early on, until very recently, that that was not the case. It was very slanted towards the prosecution's you know, point of view. And there's no question, there's no question that played a role in me being convicted the first time.
1: You think media was in on the game to get you?
2: I don't want to sound too conspiratorial here, but just the way that they were presenting things, which was biased heavily towards the prosecution, there's no question in my mind that that played a role in my conviction. I mean, because at the end of the day, all this, it hinges upon public opinion. What's the public hearing? What are they aware of? Well, when everything that's printed about me is untrue, well, they don't know that. This is, oh, it's the mainstream media, here it is. It must be reliable. You know, that's the thing. The media, you know, they have, A lot of power as well and a lot of power to influence when what they're saying isn't accurate I mean this is the result I mean people's lives can be destroyed
0: you're listening to Fair Play on justicenews.net this is Fair Play on justicenews.net
1: Welcome back to Fair Play. I'm your host, Imran Siddiqui. And today we're speaking with Luke Verkala, who fought against his wrongful conviction in 2014 for the killing of a man who had tried to sexually assault him while Luke was asleep in his own home. Luke spent eight years in prison for that and was finally acquitted in 2021. What do you think is the role of DNA evidence, you know, in terms of exonerations and in your case, acquittal?
2: Yeah, well, it's obviously come to play a larger and larger role um, in this country, and I think throughout the world. Um, And as you know, a lot of people who were on death row have been exonerated through DNA testing. So, yeah, it it can play a very large role. Of course, like anything, it can be manipulated, it can be lied about. You know, the thing in, in a trial that's kind of scary, I mean, at the end of the day, it's kind of like who, who makes the best argument, who does the best job of presenting their case, right? Well, my attorneys, at least at the second trial, did a pretty good job of showing the jury that all of my testimony and everything I've said about what happened um, from day one is backed up by the physical evidence, and DNA evidence was part of that, a pretty big part of it. And we had a lot of expert witness testimony along these lines. And that there's no question that made a large difference as well. And that was a little different than at least my lead counsel in my first trial. Uh, really, really did a pretty poor job in that regard. Like, we actually only had one expert witness who testified at my first trial. And th- that's just inexcusable, really. I mean, this time I think we had... I don't know, 12 or 15 expert witnesses. That's important because these are people who do this for a living, and they're, again, talking about what are the facts here. And this isn't just conjecture, it's science, right? So when people are presented evidence from multiple experts like that, it's, it's harder for them to ignore it.
1: What or who played the most pivotal role in your acquittal, something that others could learn and benefit from?
2: Yeah, well, again, I have to credit my two uh, trial attorneys, um, Joel Wirtz and Thaddeus Betts. And, you know, there were a lot of people that played a role, as I've said, you know, from friends and family members who did a lot of work on the outside, just kind of raising awareness. Um, and then our investigators who did a wonderful job um, and turned up a lot of stuff before and especially after winning my appeal and coming back to Deschutes County. I have to give the most credit to uh, Thad and Joel because they were the ones in the courtroom, in the trial, They're on the front line, and they just did a really good job of presenting the facts of the case and uh, doing it in a compelling way.
1: In order to win a wrongful conviction, you need a really good defense attorney who can present all the facts. Yes, you do. And if you don't have that...
2: Yeah. Then you're probably not going to get justice, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's another big problem with the system is that, you know, it's largely based on how much money a person has and can you hire a private attorney? Because even if you have a great public defender, their caseloads are so huge that it's like virtually impossible for them to give your case the attention it deserves. Mm. Now, in my case, I had both. I had a public defender and private attorneys, and that actually worked out well in my case. But yeah, I mean, I think your average defense attorney in Oregon has like anywhere from 60 to 100 cases at one time when they're working with that many people i mean how are they going to give your case the attention it deserves i mean and for most people it just doesn't happen and that's why you have all these plea deals that are being cut when they really a person should be going to trial but it's like well i you know from the lawyer's perspective i I can't really give your case the time it deserves you better just take this plea deal i mean that kind of stuff happens all the time and the prosecutors know it, and that's why they basically bully people into taking these deals. They stack charges, they threaten people with years or decades in prison, and, oh, if you go to trial, you know, we're going we're gonna to hit you with all of these charges here. But take this deal, and, you know, you only have to do a few years, and so you get people pleading guilty to stuff that they're not guilty of. That happens all the time.
1: Why didn't you take the plea deal?
2: Well, because I'm not guilty. And I just, my conscience wouldn't allow me to do that. You know, it wasn't an easy decision because, again, I was in prison doing life, 25 to life. And, you know, even after winning my appeal, I had initially had some hope um, of getting a dismissal. Um, Unfortunately, that, that didn't occur. But I was offered several plea deals in my time uh, post, post-appeal, post and they got progressively better the closer I got to trial. The last one was for just about nine and a half years. At this point, I had over eight years in. So, I mean, I could have taken a deal. The, offer, the last offer was for man two. I could have taken that and had a guaranteed out date of just over a year. Again, you have to consider that at this time, I'm still charged with murder, and if I go to trial and lose, I can wind up back in prison doing 25 to life again, and that's, that's a pretty, pretty scary prospect, and basically everyone was telling me to take the deal, not because they thought I was guilty, but because of the risk, and you can't really imagine much larger of a risk. But the thing is, I uh, I had made the decision years ago that I wasn't going to make decisions like that from a place of fear. I was going to make them out of principle, and that became kind of my guiding light here. And uh, I mean, I just thank God that uh, that saw me through and that the right outcome was achieved and I did get justice. But it was... It was far from a guarantee and you know some people I remember, said to me oh you're a gambler I'm like no you know I understand the risk here but I didn't view myself as a gambler I viewed myself as a person of principle and I believed I always believed that eventually the truth would have its day and I would get justice and again I just thank God that I finally did.
1: The most important thing Thank God, because that's why you're out here, man. Yeah. God mercy you, and you're out because I don't think they I don't think they wanted to let you go.
2: No, of course they don't. That's the other thing. Once once you're in the system, the whole thing is geared to, geared to keep you there, and it's it's an extremely arduous uphill battle. To try to get justice and freedom once you're in there. I mean, you're you're literally up against the full power of the state, and they don't want to let you go. They don't want to let anyone go, and they especially don't want people to be proven innocent because now they have to admit they made a mistake, and of course that makes them liable as well. Mm-hmm. So hence why you start someone in my position starts getting deals like that. And initially, the first deal, when I came back, was for 20 years.
1: Damn.
2: Okay, yeah. No. Um, and then, I don't know, maybe four or five months later, okay, now it's 15 years.
0: Man.
2: And, uh, you know, a couple different things happened there. I ended up filing a bar complaint against the uh, my uh, original prosecutors, and they were ultimately removed by the DA and the... Department of Justice actually took the case over but at one point one of these DOJ attorneys had looked at the case and she was actually the first prosecutor who said that she believed that I was attacked by David Ryder and after she said that the offer was dropped from 15 years to 10 years and ultimately it came down about you know half a year again after that Damn. finally at nine and a half and here's another interesting here's another interesting tidbit for you. so we had tried to do another bail hearing. I believe this was May of uh, 2020 and I was denied bail again this whole time I was held without bail even though again no criminal history, no history of violence. And probably about two weeks after this uh, my lawyers get a call from. Judge Ashby, who's the presiding judge in Deschutes County. And he's basically trying to lean on them to lean on me to take the deal. And he's like, look, you know, I don't want to see him going back to prison for the rest of his life. You know, I know this was just a one-off event. I know he's not a threat to the public. Um, I know he's not a flight risk. And, you know, if, if your client takes this deal, and again this is the deal for nine and a half, if he takes this deal I'd be totally fine with him getting out on an ankle monitor for a month or two or however long he needed to take care of some stuff before he goes and finishes his sentence. Now what's striking about that is the only reason someone is held without bail is because they're considered to be either a flight risk Or a danger to the public. Now here is the presiding judge, the head judge in Deschutes County, two weeks after I'm denied bail, supposedly for these reasons, right? He's admitting to my lawyers that I'm neither of those things. Not only that, but he's willing to let me out basically the next day. All I have to do is plead guilty.
1: Well, thank God you did not.
2: Yeah, thank God. But that was that was difficult too. I mean like I'm sitting here, oh, I can be out tomorrow.
1: It must be really difficult.
2: And this this is what they do. They dangle these incentives in front of you. And again, you're it's just it's so crooked and corrupt. It's it's really pretty disturbing what goes on. Yeah.
1: It's playing mind games to confuse you and to just you know, surrender, yep. even though your conscience telling you that uh, uh you know I can, but yeah, it's a psychological warfare, oh,
2: completely, completely.
1: What do you think about when you look back and you you think about all those guys, mm-hmm. you know God helped you get out, yeah, and there are still so many out there who are there and 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 some of them, probably a lot of them, have evidence that they're innocent mm. or there's a wrongful conviction you know like somebody getting 30 years for stealing a t-shirt for example right right but when you think about those guys that you are with mm-hmm. do you think they get good defense attorneys
2: most of them don't and that's a large reason of why they're there and most of them don't don't have the kind of family support that i was blessed enough to have and that makes a huge difference too. You know, a lot of a lot of the people in prison are—they're all alone in there, and it's really pretty sad. You know, a lot of them come from broken homes, and uh, you know, they just never had the benefit of a positive role model or you know that social safety net, if you will, or just someone to show them—not only show them the right way to live, but then to be there when you know they need a shoulder to lean on or whatever, you know. And yeah, then something happens, and they end up getting, you know, some run-of-the-mill defense attorney who does a half-assed job for them, and, yeah, this is the result. They're now sitting in prison.
0: This is Fair Play on Justicenews.net. This is Fair Play on Justicenews.net.
1: Welcome back to Fair Play. I'm your host, Ron Taddiqi, and today we're speaking with Luke Verkala, who fought against his wrongful conviction in 2014 for the killing of a man who had tried to sexually assault him while Luke was asleep in his own home. Luke spent eight years in prison for that and was finally acquitted in 2021. How does it feel to be acquitted?
2: How did it feel? Yeah. Well, it was pretty overwhelming. Um... You can imagine that uh that final moment where I'm in the courtroom, you know standing there in front of the judge and jury, waiting for the verdict, um, things don't get much more tense than that,
1: yeah,
2: and you know, as I think I indicated, it's this obviously I always believed that I'd get justice, but I didn't know when and it certainly wasn't a foregone conclusion. So, I mean, when they they announced the verdict, um, it was a powerful moment. Yeah,
1: vindicated.
2: Yep. Pretty emotional. Yeah, I can imagine.
1: How was your experience with the courts the first time around in 2013 and 2014? And then the second trial in 2018, what was the major difference between the two?
2: You know, obviously there were some different different players who took the stage, if you will. So, like, my original prosecutors were removed from the case, um, largely in response to this bar complaint I filed against them. And my original judge, uh, Stephen Forte, who was very biased against me, um, and in fact... Right after a returned to Deschutes County in 2018, one of the first things we tried to do was get him either to recuse or to have him removed from the case because of bias. So we filed a motion, had a hearing on that. Unfortunately, the presiding judge um, didn't agree with us. He, uh, he stated that he saw no evidence of bias from Judge Forte, which is completely inaccurate. I mean, he made very specific statements during the trial and then at my sentencing as well. But anyway, I was back awaiting retrial for so long that he actually retired while I was there. So basically, the last time I saw him was when he denied me bail. After that, Judge Randy Miller took the case over. And I feel overall that he was He was a more fair arbiter of justice than Forte was. Now, he still made a couple rulings that I don't agree with, you know, the biggest being not allowing basically any of the evidence of Ryder's prior bad acts into the trial. But overall, I just feel he was less biased towards the, uh, less slanted, less aligned with the prosecution than Forte had been um and then again this second trial it was prosecuted by the department of justice which originally gave me hope you know because they weren't i didn't believe they had the emotional investment that the original prosecutors did so initially i'd hoped for a little more objectivity from them Um, unfortunately that didn't really prove to be the case and this is another thing about the system that was actually kind of shocking and disturbing to me. You know, I just assumed, naively, but uh, assumed that when a person wins an appeal, that they come back and they're gonna have new prosecutors and a new judge assigned to the case. Because how can you hope to get objectivity from the same people who sent you to prison the first time? And even if they had been objective, now, like, okay, they've just had this conviction overturned. That's kind of a slap in the face to them. So now their reputation's on the line. So they're going to double down, and that's exactly what they did. And so that that was very, yeah. like I said, disturbing to me, and I think that's another systemic issue that needs to be changed. I mean, if if you win an appeal, you should be allowed to have a new set of eyes looking at your case, looking at it. Objectively,
1: did the Deschutes County DA's office ever contact you or reach out after the acquittal?
2: No, they didn't. And they—they uh, they basically, you know, in, like I mentioned, I've had—I've done multiple interviews um, since my release, and basically all of the reporting has been favorable to me. And in many of the stories, uh, the reporters had reached out to members of the DA's office and the DOJ, and basically none of them had any comment.
1: What do you think about the Court of Appeals?
2: Well, the Court of Appeals obviously did their job. They overturned my conviction, my wrongful conviction. And they're the ones that allowed me to, I mean, have this second chance, which ultimately led to my release. The one thing, I mean... It doesn't really matter now because I was acquitted, but I guess at the time, I just kind of regretted the fact that they didn't rule on every issue we presented in our appellate brief. They just ruled on the one, and they basically said, look, this is enough to overturn things, so we don't need to get into the other two major issues.
1: But nobody looked at the past behavior of Mr. Ryder.
2: Right. So that was something that we discussed in the brief, which was written by my my appellate attorney's name was David Ferry, who did a really good job. And uh, the other thing was this issue of basically character assassination, where they were using my history as a journalist and as a writer against me. And like in their closing statements alone, they referred to me as a storyteller 50 times. Mm hmm you know, their whole thing was, oh, this guy, you know, he writes for a living, he can't believe anything he says.
1: Even though they, uh, you tried to convince your first attorney to put your story out there to the media, which was denied.
2: Yes, and that was, that was something that was also unfortunate, and that was obviously another example of my original attorneys, you know, kind of dropping the ball, I guess. Like, because that was one of the first things I said, well, look, we need to make a statement to the press here, even if it's just something basic. And They're basically like, well, no, you know, we we don't want to tip our hand or whatever. Um, But ultimately that was a huge error because then it allowed the prosecutors at my first trial to make this statement, which was, again, in line with the storyteller thing, but they're like, oh, he's had 16 months to sit around and come up with this story, right? where if we would have just made a brief statement to the press, that whole argument wouldn't have been able to be made. And like I said, that was something I wanted to rectify and made sure we did. When I came back, we're reaching out to the media. We're putting as much of the truth and the facts out there as we possibly can. And there's no question that made a difference. Mm -hmm. They rule on the one thing, which was the interrogation and, you know, me invoking my right to counsel. And okay, none of that can be used, right? So what that did was it stopped the prosecutors from making those same arguments that they did on that issue. But the fact that they didn't rule on the other two things allowed them to, one, again, keep all of the prior bad act stuff on Ryder out, and then to also engage in the same kind of character assassination as the first prosecutors did. Now, I will say that that aspect was a little more limited, and I think it's because of the fact that uh, even though, so we had this hearing, you know, and filed motions about trying to get in all the prior bad acts of David Ryder. And Judge Miller ruled in favor of the prosecution, basically allowing none of it in. But there was one caveat in his uh, order which basically said, look, this doesn't apply to potential arguments or testimony that may arise at trial. And how we took that, and I think how the prosecution took that as well, was that if they start to go down that path again, like attacking my character and trying to portray Ryder as this peaceful family man, which he was not, but that's what the prosecution, that's how they tried to spin it the first time around. Anyway, if you do that, then all this stuff is going to come in. That's how we took it. And I think the fact that that was in there, it kind of held the DOJ prosecutors a little more in check in that regard.
1: Hmm.
2: But the point the point is, if, if the Court of Appeals had just said, had answered those two points directly as well, then neither of that would have been an issue. Because once they rule, okay, now you have to follow this ruling. So, and from what I've heard talking to several attorneys, this happens pretty often, where they'll only pick one thing and rule on that, and it makes it a little harder for defendants when that happens, because that gives more leeway to the prosecutors when you're coming back for a retrial.
1: If someone is acquitted... Shouldn't there be any compensation because this guy who's just been acquitted and scarred for life, he can't make a living so easy like the rest of the people.
2: Yeah, obviously there should be. And unfortunately, you know, there are, I think there's 37 states in the country now that do have some sort of fund set up um, to pay exonerees when they get out. Oregon um, is not one of those, although right now there is a bill in the Oregon Legislature, which would establish this, and I hope it passes, because yes, if if the state wrongfully convicts someone and destroys their life, obviously that person is owed some compensation. They've had this time, years taken from them, that they will never get back. And as I kind of indicated earlier, re re-entering society, even when you have a lot of family support, which I'm lucky enough to have, Even then, it's very difficult. And a lot of people in prison, as I also said, have none of that. So it's very crucial. And I hope that, I mean, there is, I heard that uh, Maxine Waters had also introduced something, you know, in the uh, U.S. Congress to, like, raise, raise the funding from $50,000 50 to 75000 per year. Now, that still doesn't address the issue, I don't think, of every state having this. That still has to be a state-by-state state thing. But the point is, yes, this needs to be act- enacted in every state in this country. If you're wrongfully convicted, if you're exonerated, you're owed something by the government that put you there, period. And the people, the bad actors, who played a role in doing that, they need to be held accountable as well. And here I'm speaking specifically of the prosecutors. And there was some police misconduct in my case, too. And, you know, as we've seen in the media, that's, that's gotten a lot more attention uh, recently. But the prosecution aspect hasn't yet. And I think that's actually the biggest problem in the system right now.
1: Yeah, they have prosecutorial immunity, yeah. which, uh, oh. which is a big big question mark. Yeah. So are you saying that the, the state will not compensate you?
2: As of now, no. The only way for someone like me to get compensation is to file civil litigation.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And that's a, that's a multi-year process, and obviously there's no guarantee that you're gonna get anything either.
1: Wow. Uh, isn't it weird that the, the same justice system that prosecutes people and, and, ha- and has built a system to address that prosecution, But once it discovers that someone is innocent, then they just leave them out to dry.
2: Yeah, it's kind of like, oh, sorry, fare thee well.
1: So shouldn't there be a... And really, I
2: didn't even, I haven't even gotten an apology. You know, just like, I mean, yes, it was great in that moment when the judge is like, Mr. Workley, you're free to go. That was awesome. But still, like, no, not even, oh... You know, our bad. No, nothing. You know, they're just sticking to their guns. And, yeah, not a peep. And that was something back when, in the lead up to trial, um, you know, I wanted my attorneys to talk with the DOJ attorneys. I mean, prior to that, we were talking to, the, you know, prosecutors from the DA's office, specifically John Hummel, who's the head DA. And we were talking about dismissal. Well, he wasn't hearing it. But again, for a couple of reasons, I had a little hope when the DOJ took over. and you know, My attorneys, after they had a little time to go through the case materials, they had this conversation. They were actually very hostile, to, even to the su- suggestion of a dismissal. And I wasn't here for this conversation, so this is what my my attorneys are relaying to me. But basically it was like,
1: <laughs>
2: oh yeah, you know, we know that your client wants wants a dismissal, an apology, but he's not going to get it. We were brought on to take this to trial, and that's what we're doing. And then they, they uh, uttered this statement, which was repeated over and over from basically all the prosecutors who were on the case, which is, oh, his testimony, or no, his version of events doesn't line up with the physical evidence, which is completely erroneous.
1: Yeah, and which they have failed to present. Isn't this weird that prosecutors' assertion is failing in their own court of law? Otherwise, you wouldn't be acquitted.
2: Yeah, exactly. Well, and the other disturbing thing is how all these prosecutors, it's like, it's almost like a little click or something. They all have each other's back. And like, again, okay, there's a new DA, there's new prosecutors on the case. I have this hope that I'm going to get some objectivity out of them. They're actually going to look at the evidence and see that this was self-defense, see that I was wrongly convicted, see that I need to be dis- that the charges need to be dismissed. But no, they end up not only getting in line with their position, but quite eerily repeating the exact same phrase verbatim, like, "Okay, obviously." That didn't just come to them out of the ether. They talked with the other prosecutors, they said that line, and now it's coming out of their mouths. Like, man. I mean, just, yeah. Very disturbing. Do you think? And to say something like that when it's just blatantly false. And again, I just thank God that the jury recognized that it was false. And again, I have to thank my attorneys for doing just a really good job of presenting the physical evidence which backs up every single thing I've said from the beginning.
1: I mean, that's what I would do, man, that I would first thank God and then thank whoever God sent to help me out. Yes, yes. Because that's what he did. I mean, these two guys were sent to you to help you out and present the facts.
2: No, I know. You know, know. God helps
1: in uh, mysterious ways.
2: Absolutely.
1: What role do you think race plays in the U.S. criminal justice system? Or do you think that In your case, justice system is more biased than racist because there is this argument that there are more blacks compared to whites who are wrongly incarcerated.
2: Yeah. And I I mean, based on what I've read and seen, I think that's accurate. But yeah, I mean, as my story indicates, I mean, I'm a white guy and this still happened to me. So it's not just about race. It's a bigger problem than just that. Yes, that is a part of the problem. But it's more systemic than that.
1: Because in your case, they didn't even give a damn about your race. They said, Let's just put this guy and screw him over.
2: Yeah. Yep.
1: Do you think a lot no, and of They that... presented
2: me as like some, literally like this derelict transient. Okay, I'm in Bend with my future wife and stepson, we're living together, renting a three bedroom home, a nice home in a nice neighborhood. I'm a writer and a photographer. I mean, again, never been in jail, no criminal record. I mean, just a normal citizen, right? But they tore my life to shreds and said things like, oh, he was just staying at his girlfriend's house, making it sound like I'm couch surfing or something. No, my name is on the lease. I'm renting a house here. But yet, this is what they do, especially when they don't actually have anything. They assassinate your character. Hmm. And it's pretty sickening to see it playing out in real time. And, again, not only basically what they did, you know, like, They took David Ryder and they portrayed him as the type of person I actually am, i.e. a family man, a peaceful man. And they portrayed me as who he actually was, which is some like sexual deviant and a psychopath and literally someone who kills people because they piss me off or they say the wrong thing to me.
1: But hang on a second. I there's evidence of what Mr. Ryder was putting online. Oh yeah. Uh on his social media post and then what about his wife texting him the same night to come home because he needs to take care of that kid of their. Yeah,
2: exactly. Exactly. There's there's a mountain of evidence indicating what his character was and basically none of it was allowed into the trial. So how are you going to get a fair trial when that occurs? And Especially in the first trial, like I said, what that allowed the prosecutors to do was make up this whole fantasy, which had no relation to reality at all. And again, that's, that was unfortunately um, convincing to the jury, and it resulted in me getting convicted of a crime I didn't commit.
1: So are you saying that in your case, the characters were reversed?
2: Pretty much.
1: Okay. Because it kind of like boggles the mind what happened here when, look at the facts.
2: Yeah, it's unbelievable. I mean, we literally had numerous witnesses lined up to testify about his acts of violence. I mean, this is a guy who beat up former girlfriends, who kicked people down flights of stairs. I mean, the guy was kind of a maniac really. And then also all this deviant sexual stuff, posting rape fantasies online, doing all sorts of inappropriate sexual stuff in the workplace. He got kicked out of the Navy for this kind of shit. And what else? Like his other thing was like, he liked to pursue guys that he knew were straight. That was like his thing. And there's a long record of him doing this for years. But again, the jury doesn't get to hear this. The prosecutors know about it. They get it suppressed and then they get up and lie about it. And just one, this was one of the most egregious things that happened in the second trial, which I already said, that, that aspect was more restrained, but it still happened and like, okay, I just said, we have all these witnesses lined up. One guy who served with him in the Navy um, saw multiple incidents of violence, heavy drinking, and then he was always making these sexual advances towards him. He's a straight man. Ryder was apparently bisexual or whatever. So, But again, his thing is like going after straight dudes. and
1: That's what his wife said.
2: And at one point, he actually, he poisoned this guy. He fed him rubbing alcohol, told him that it was like vodka or Everclear or something. But it was found out later it was actually rubbing alcohol. So he gets sicker than a dog. And they get in trouble in the Navy. And this wasn't the first incident he had. So Ryder actually got kicked out of the Navy over this thing. Um, And the other guy who'd been on track to be in, like, some special ops... That was totally derailed for him. But anyway, they're, they're getting ready to go before, like, the disciplinary board, or whatever it is, on the ship. And uh, Ryder starts trying to convince this guy to lie for him at this review. And he started offering sexual favors to this guy if he would do this. And this guy's like, no, man, I'm not interested in that, and I'm not going to lie for you either. And like I said, Ryder gets kicked out. And this guy had also seen him start fights with people, all you know, just a whole bunch of this type of stuff. Now, this guy was the only person, and again, we probably had, I don't even know, 15 more people with similar things to say. This guy had, you know, one of the bigger caches, of information but so ultimately miller he allows us to put on just this one guy and he only allowed us to ask him one question and that question was in your opinion did david Ryder have a temper when he was drinking and the answer was yes
1: just one question that's it
2: just yeah again think about all this mountain this mountain of evidence
1: after all this information
2: this plethora of witnesses we're only allowed to put on one and we can only ask him that one question and this is a result of argument from the prosecution to get all this suppressed okay so we're obviously disappointed but it actually i think this did make a difference and the prosecution actually kind of screwed up here so we ask him this question did he have a temper yes and uh, then one of the prosecutors jumps up, Jamie Kimberly, she's like, oh, well, was this just, uh, you know, like bar fights and things like that? This guy, Brendan Bazan was his name. He gets quiet for a second and he's like, well, it didn't take me long to learn that David Ryder was the type of person you didn't want to be around when, you were, when he was drinking. Mm. So it wasn't a lot... But I think it was enough just to give the jury a little glimpse into Ryder. And that combined with the fact that the, the prosecution put on zero witnesses who had anything good to say about Ryder. Okay. So the only thing they're hearing is this, and then obviously all the physical evidence, my testimony. I took the stand in the second trial like I did in the first. But here, here circling back to my original point, so the lie that came out of this. Now, again, keep in mind, of all this evidence, only the one question from one guy, and the prosecutors not only know about all of it, they just got it all suppressed. Now, in her closing, Kristen Hoffmeyer, one of the other DOJ attorneys, she gets up and she turns to the jury and she's like, the defense had to scour the earth to find just one person who could say something negative about David Ryder, Man. Yeah.
1: Well, and uh, at that time, no one could just go online to freelukewerkela.com. And... Well, they
2: could, and I'll never know if they did or not, but I'm guessing that some of them probably did.
1: Yeah, because the thing is that uh, I would like to remind the listeners that whatever that's being discussed is not an attempt to character assassinate someone especially someone who's passed away all of this all of this that we're talking about is available data online a lot of that is available on freelukeverkala.com and a lot of that is available in the court documents these are all testimonies of people whatever that we're saying is backed up with evidence and the reason why we're saying this is because we want to put all the truth out there at least what we're capable of putting out there So to answer my question that if the justice system, the criminal justice system is racist or biased, in your case, would it be suffice to say that the criminal justice system is actually biased?
2: Well, it's clearly very, very biased.
1: And the attempt is to sustain the prison complex, the prison industry.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: So that people people's livelihoods are maintained
2: yep yeah it's basically it's basically like an industrial complex
1: in this country mm.
2: and as I said once you're in there the whole thing is geared up to keep you there
1: yeah even though there would be evidence that the person is innocent oh yeah of that client
2: oh yeah yeah
1: how do you think they sleep at night those people who know what they're doing
2: <sighs> yeah I've asked myself that many times and now, the only thing I can come up with is, I don't know, either they just don't have a conscience or they just have such thick blinders on that they're, you know, psychologically they're incapable of having an open mind. And and this, this is actually a common psychological thing, right? Like confirmation bias. Once someone forms an opinion, like they start looking for any kind of justification to back up that opinion. And they'll ignore mountains of evidence to the contrary, just because it's like uncomfortable to challenge an opinion that one has formed. I think that's magnified with prosecutors, because one, you know, there's all this scrutiny on them, and there's actually incentives for them to have high conviction rates. They're rewarded when they do that. So for them to say, oh yeah, we made a mistake, looks like this guy's innocent, there's actually a lot of pressure on him to do the opposite. And guess what happens most of the time? They don't acknowledge it. Very rarely will they drop charges and say, oh, we made a mistake. It's just, yeah.
1: So it's more about getting convictions than to get justice.
2: Exactly. And what is justice? Justice is supposed to be a search for truth, right? Yep. But that's, that's not what it is And one of the, you know, some of the, I'd say, core principles That our justice system was supposed to be founded on They're just, they're not being adhered to anymore One of them, you know, the presumption of innocence
1: Until proven guilty
2: Yeah, it's, in practice, it's the opposite of that Now, you have to prove your innocence You're presumed guilty in this country That's not the way it's supposed to be One of my favorite quotes is from Ben Franklin And what he said was, it's better that 100 guilty persons should escape than that one innocent person should be made to suffer. That's the idea that our justice system was founded upon. And it's so crucial because what is worse than that? Sending, destroying an innocent person's life, that's one of the worst things that we can do as a nation, as a people. And somewhere along the way, we've lost sight of that. And the result is you have a lot of innocent people sitting in prison.
1: So what do you think it would take to reform the criminal justice system?
2: Well, that's a pretty complicated question. But like I've said, I think one of the biggest things is just uh, holding prosecutors accountable. And... One thing I think needs to happen is we need to get rid of mandatory minimum sentencing, because what that does is takes power away from the judge, who's supposed to be this person who uses their discretion on individual cases, and now we're just talking about sentencing, right? I just I don't like the idea of these blanket sentences, because the fact is no two cases are alike. That should be in the judge's purview to decide. But yeah. When we're going with these mandatory minimums like you have here in Oregon, you know, Measure 11 being the main one, Measure 57 is the other. It gives even more power to the prosecutors, and I'm sorry, but the prosecutors need to have less power, not more power. Because again, they're they're really just out of control, and even when they're caught blatantly doing misconduct, rarely does anything happen and i'm actually dealing with this right now i mentioned i'd filed the bar plan and these things go on for a long time there's multiple stages now about two weeks ago i had got a letter i initially filed this back in 2020 basically right after i was denied bail so it's been going on since what july i think so basically a year um about two weeks ago, I got a letter saying that um, it had been passed on basically to the next level, which was, uh, let's see, like the disciplinary council's office, right? So the initial group of people found there was enough merit to move it on to the next level. And uh, unfortunately, whoever first received that in their office I just received a letter from them a couple days ago saying that they, uh, they didn't agree that any misconduct had been occurred. So what I'm doing now is basically contesting that, and it'll be passed on to the State Professional Responsibility Board for review. But I, I tell you this because in my case, there's a lot of blatant misconduct, and it's all documented. We even had an anonymous letter that was sent from someone who worked in the Deschutes County DA's office, sent a letter to the presiding judge at that time, saying that the head DA, Patrick Flaherty, in collusion with the Ben PD, chief of police, and detectives, were withholding evidence in my case and lying about it. Damn. Yeah. Yeah. That's just one piece of the puzzle here. The point is, it's pretty clear that multiple incidents of misconduct occurred here. But now here, a year into this bar complaint, I have someone saying, oh, no, I don't see any evidence of misconduct here. Like, my God, are you serious? Again, all I can come up with is here you have another example of an attorney having another attorney's back. Because no reasonable person could look at this stuff and come to that conclusion. So anyway, I'm, like I said, I'm literally right now writing up my response to this, and hopefully whoever whoever sees it, you know, on the uh, review board or whatever, um, is able to be a little more objective and it keeps moving forward. But the point is. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if it just stops right here because this is what you're up against and this is how the prosecutors get away with doing this stuff because there's no accountability.
1: Yeah, in my experience of uh, short, little, tiny experience of interviewing people who've been exonerated or, or acquitted or are still in prison even though they're innocent, what I have noticed, and that's my personal view, is that the U.S. criminal justice system and the prosecutors are highly extremely arrogant without the truth yes you can be you can be arrogant if you have truth with you but these guys are like those guys that when you're driving on the road and someone tries to hit you with their car and you honk at them to remind them that you're about to hit me they honk back at you and flip a finger
2: right yeah that's a pretty good that's a pretty good analogy
1: so it's going to be highly uh uh difficult reform oh a
2: lot of them that's the other thing they're like ego egomaniacs oh yeah and i i i don't want to get too dramatic here but to me i mean seeing this stuff in action it feels like pure evil that's how it feels to me like you're deliberately lying trying to destroy someone's life and who knows what's actually going on in their heads but they know at least there's all this information out there showing that oh maybe this person is innocent no we're just gonna ignore all that and we're just going full bore here send this person to prison for life or in many cases oh send them to death row you know they don't give a damn
1: yeah that's why you know initially when i started a lot of them never responded to my interview requests but i'm not even interested anymore because you know they get so many people to interview them it's the people on the other side that uh, we need to talk to yeah
2: I will say, just just on the psychological matter, because we went into that a little bit, there's two books that I'd recommend people read on this subject. One is by Malcolm Gladwell, Talking to Strangers. And uh, the other one was titled Blind Injustice. I can't remember that author's name right now, but he is himself a former prosecutor, and now he's one of the... He had kind of an awakening moment um, when he first came across a case of actual innocence. He'd been a skeptic as well. Now, he's one of the head guys in uh, the Innocence Project. And he just, he talks about this, you know, wrongful convictions, how they happen, and the mindset behind it.
0: This is Fair Play on Justicenews.net. This is Fair Play on Justicenews.net.
1: Welcome back to Fair Play. I'm your host, Imran Siddiqui, and today we're speaking with Luke Verkala, who fought against his wrongful conviction in 2014 for the killing of a man who had tried to sexually assault him while Luke was asleep in his own home. Luke spent eight years in prison for that and was finally acquitted in 2021. We have seen that there are cases where someone is innocent and they're exonerated really fast. Mm. And then we've seen people who are innocent and are still not exonerated. Yeah. One of the attorneys that I interviewed said that one of the spokesperson from the DA's office said that the feedback that she got was that that person had enough public support yeah for us to move and right, you know, validate exoneration. And the other question the attorney asked that what about those who don't have public support? So I guess what I'm trying to ask you is that how important do you think it is for the people to know the truth and then get behind it and then rally behind that truth?
2: Well, I think it's extremely important and I think it makes all the difference in the world. And, you know, I kind of indicated I think that made a big difference in my case because I I just felt that that was crucial, um, especially after winning my appeal, like we have to get the word out to the public. Because we have to, you know, basically, you have to win in the court of public opinion before you win in the actual courtroom. And I think we did that. And I'll never know to what extent. But like I said, you know, there was a lot of public engagement that was carried out largely by a few of my family members and close friends. And, I mean, I myself, you know, I wrote some editorials to the newspapers. I did a lot of outreach. Not much of it saw the light of day in the mainstream media, but p- people became aware, and I was sending letters and other things to multiple individuals, and I guess the point is we made raising public awareness on the facts of my case a pretty large priority, and I just, I know in my gut that that, that played a large role in in getting justice here. Now it wasn't it wasn't enough, unfortunately, to pressure these DAs to drop the charges. But I think it did play a role in them, you know, making the plea deal that they did. Which, as I said before, I could have signed this plea deal and been out in a little over a year. But ultimately, I mean, yes, it was it was very scary going to trial. At the time, I I didn't want to do that again because obviously I found out first firsthand anytime you go to trial I don't care how good your case is it's always going to be a roll of the dice mm. that's just the nature of it so obviously I wanted a, dis- a dismissal but from where I'm sitting now I got the best possible outcome there is mm. because the problem with a dismissal is at any point some other prosecutor can come back and say oh hey actually I think there's something to this and they can bring the charges back up against you Yeah, but the fact that I went to trial again and won means they can never do that. It's done. It's behind me forever. That's the positive side of it. But as I said, it's it's a very, very scary thing going to trial, especially when the stakes are that high. I mean, I'm literally the rest of my life was on the line here. But that's that's what it takes. And that's another thing. I mean, a lot of people just aren't willing to take that kind of a risk to get justice, and understandably, you know, what's more terrifying than that? And it shouldn't, you shouldn't have to be in a position to do something like that. I mean, I never should have been there in the first place.
1: I think it has a lot to do with faith in God also, because- uh... Yeah,
2: absolutely. I mean, faith, faith is what sustained me through this process. Faith that there was some purpose, there was some reason You know, I don't believe it was just random. And knowing that I wasn't guilty, and knowing that I would get justice. And, yeah, as I've said, I I thank God for that and getting me through and providing me with the wonderful support that I did have, so.
1: And then, you know, one might be in a difficult spot thinking that, should I take this, should I do that? Uh, You know, one would not even imagine that if I just wait and trust over God. He would get me a better deal. Yeah. Like, like in your case. I mean, had you done, had you gone for that, for the dismissal, then you wouldn't get the golden nugget that you got. Right. Exactly. So it's uh, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Joseph said that. Surely, surely, my Lord, mysterious to what He wishes.
2: Yeah, and you you had mentioned uh, before Matthew seventeen twenty. That was a verse that I
1: yeah kept
2: in mind throughout this experience, you know just basically the gist of it is faith can move mountains, and it's it's absolutely true
1: uh just to be confirmed because I don't want to gamble with words of God mm-hmm. in any books of God, so you know matthew seventeen20 he replied because you have because you have so little faith, right truly, I tell you. If you have faith as, a grain as small of as a mustard seed, seed
2: and you, say unto you can mountain, say
1: to this mountain, Remove
2: hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. There you have it.
1: So, that's it. You know, I mean, what can I say uh, more than that? Yeah. And, uh, and faith uh, uh, has moved mountains. And, I mean, God gave um, David... Uh, The the abilities that we can't even imagine And we get into what Solomon And and, and all those other messengers of God So in your case You believed and you Waited And here is your reward But the challenge now Is that There are 2.2 million people Who are incarcerated Yeah, I don't know the truth Of what's going on in there But what I do know Is that there is no data available, by the way, of how many of those 2.2 million people are potentially innocent. But according to some surveys done by uh, some uh, innocence organizations, mm. it comes close to 50 to 60,000 people. Yeah. So what do you think is going to happen to them? Because a lot of them that I've spoken to uh, tell me that some, most of them can't even read or write let alone you know put up a case and fight for their exoneration what do you think can be done to help those individuals who are currently wrongfully incarcerated and trapped in this unjust justice system when there is evidence that these guys are innocent
2: yeah well i think that's that's obviously where people on the outside come in and especially people like myself who've seen it firsthand, seen, you know, how messed up the system is and the great need for reform. And, uh, you know, I just, I feel compelled to basically bring awareness to people, um, shine a light on what's going on um, through telling my story and not only mine, but other people's stories, you know, because I met a lot of guys on the inside. I've come across a lot of, a lot of different stories and I guess I have this, this kind of a unique perspective and you know my hope as I said is because it, it's, it's very it's a very overwhelming thing to go through yes I had faith but also a lot of doubt like why is this happening you know what, mm. what is the point of all this well this is what I believe the point is to, to bring something good out of it and to hopefully make a positive difference in bringing about some reform in the system. And I think one of the largest ways to at least start some positive change is by raising awareness. So that's what I hope to do. and I mean, that's why I'm doing this interview and I've done other interviews and written articles and I'm working on a book that I started in prison, Um, all to that end, to you know, just kind of give a glimpse, just for you know, average people in this country, um, as to how screwed up it is. And again, going back to what you were saying, it all comes down to like public opinion. And you know, you can't you can't bring about real change till enough people get pissed off and decide they're going to do something about it. So, yeah, it's really just about. Getting the knowledge, getting the truth to the public, and then working on bringing about positive reform.
1: And one of the uh, attorneys that I interviewed uh, out of Texas, um, what he was saying is, and uh, tell me if you agree with this or not, is that the best way to send a message to corrupt prosecutors or corrupt judges is by getting rid of them. Through votes.
2: Yeah. Well, they shouldn't be allowed to practice law. That's just a fact. Disbarred. Yep. Well, and that's why, like, I filed the bar complaint in my case. Um, and it's also why I'm filing civil litigation. I mean, yes, I want some compensation for the time that I did, but it's also a method of holding them accountable. It's a method about bringing positive change. So it's unfortunate that it has to be that way in this country, but that's really the only recourse that a person is left with.
1: The fact of the matter is that what happened with you in your case could happen to anyone. Exactly, exactly.
2: If there's anything else that you can pull away from my story, it's that right there. The fact that this happened to me means it can happen to anyone.
0: This is Fair Play. On Justice